Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Shapes of Stories, a podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, as your host. Stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be from our favourite books, our life experiences, or the day-to-day challenges and issues we face in the world today. Yes, yeah, so um, this episode of the podcast was a bit surreal, to be honest. Um, my guest is the hilarious, um, successful comedian Paul Foote, and you may uh, know Paul from um, his stand-up and some of the quiz shows he's been on. He's been on a He's been on most of them with a bigger eight out of ten, uh, eight out of ten cats. Um, Would I lie to you? The buzzcocks. He's been on them all, I think. Um, but yeah, anyway, I say it was a surreal episode to record because um, I was sort of talking to Paul before, and I said, "Well, you know, when do you want to do the podcast? When, when's a good time for you to do it?" And uh, and he was like, "Oh, I don't know, about one o'clock in the morning." <laughs> and uh i was i thought that was a joke <laughs> um and i was like and he was like no seriously um yeah around that time would be great later later on i think i think if i would have said three or four that would have suited him even better but it turns out paul is a nocturnal guy <laughs> and um yeah it was really interesting actually so um it was one of those chats where i sort of woke up the next day kind of was like did i dream that did i dream that i was talking to paul at one o'clock in the morning <laughs> um but no it was reality and uh, we had a great chat as well you know obviously um he's known for his i think there's a paper that called him um compared him to a rare exotic bird and i think that's a really good way to describe paul um but yeah we had a great chat we spoke about lots of different subjects his, his career comedy influences um russell brand uh, is a big um inspired you know, is inspired by Paul Foot, you know, a lot of his mannerisms and there's been some of some of Paul's fans have not not, not liked Russell Brand because I think he's copying him. So we spoke about that, but Paul and Russell are very good friends. And um yeah, we spoke about conspiracy theories. We spoke about how to deal with hecklers and things like that. Um yeah, really, really interesting and uh yeah it was really um eye opening to kind of understand the life of a comedian, I guess. And uh yeah, it was just great just watching Paul at his best. So without further ado, here is my chat with the wonderful Paul Foot. Oh, so you quite a night owl generally, I suppose? Yes, a night owl is my time. Yeah. I, I had a little early evening doze between eight and nine and now I'll be up all night now yeah is so you tend, tend to sort of your sleep pattern tends to sort of d- differ with the weather or spring or well, when it's the summer I get up more because it's in the sunshine yeah but in, in the winter I, and also I've been more nocturnal in the winter because it's, it's especially when it's really cold in the day and also with lockdown I've become even more nocturnal you can just do what you like, you know. <laughs> but um, when I go back to working properly, it'll be a bit different because it's not just the evening I have to work. Sometimes you have to leave quite early to get to places and you actually have to be up, you know. Yeah. So then I have to go to bed at night. <laughs> That's my job. That is your job. I mean, have you, have you got the shirt and tie on? Are you, what, what's, what's going on underneath? 
Have we, uh, have we got well, the box? <laughs> I wouldn't like to say, but I'm not necessarily as smart below as above. Yeah, well, no, I'm the same. I've got my, my pyjama bottoms on. Yeah, I've got pyjama bottom on as well. Under yeah. below. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Yeah. I think it's a bit dark. Do you think I'm a bit dark? Uh, do you think? Uh, do you think we need um, a two thousand seven hundred watt LED bulb on me? I think oh, we might. I'll go on. Do it. Do it. What difference that makes? <laughs> two thousand. I'll just go turn that like that. Wow. Three thousand. Oh, sorry, I made a. I made a mistake. It was three thousand two hundred. Well, I just noticed that straight away. Just. It was it's like, that's a bit brighter with the 3,200 kilowatts on there. Yeah. Oh, so, I'm going to test this one. I don't think I need this one. But I'm going to test <laughs> it because I knocked it over yesterday. Oh, it works fine. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yes, yes. 3,200 watts. Ah, was that what God was like, do you think, when he was sort of that there'd be light and he was figuring out <laughs> the lighting for the earth? Yeah, he would have been like that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we have different. And you, got his, you could have 3,000... You can have hot or cold. I've got hot, but you can have cold lighting. I've got the warmest lighting possible. Well, that... But the brightest, 3,200 kilowatts or megawatts or whatever it is. <laughs> well, how have you been doing over COVID this last year? How have you, how have you been? Well, it's been quite in? nice, really. Okay. I mean, um, I've enjoyed the lockdown and the opportunity to write and so on. Uh, and in the more recent times... I have, uh, and I've only done two think two live shows since last March, and it's been it's all been Zoom shows, which have been really fun, connecting with the people who follow me on the Zoom, and my people who watch my Zoom shows, and doing lots of writing, and sometimes just enjoying sort of life in a way that one couldn't before, because it was always so busy, just seeing friends and neighbours and so on. Well, not friends from afar, but neighbours and things like that. Um, I think in more recent times, it's become a bit harder if it, it seems like, um, uh, you know, um, it's, more, it's harder to be creative, I think, in the latter times, because it's so long with so little stimulation. In fact, I was reading something online about how lots of authors who write crime novels or whatever they write, and they're all saying the same, that the first lockdown they found a real release because it meant there was a few distractions and so on but then the later lockdowns they just found that they just felt uh, fewer ideas because they were just mm -hmm. stuck with the same walls all the time so I feel a bit like that now and then I feel sort of hopeful for the future now with the vaccines and with things we hope getting back to normal because we have to remember I mean they're talking about hospitality being one of the latest things to go back to normal and maybe airlines even later, and then probably theatres even later. I mean, that's the last thing. In fact, no one's really mentioning theatres, but that's the thing that's going to be affected probably the latest of anything. And um, I suppose it's all right for someone like me because I'm established and I have my Zoom people who watch me and that gives me something to do. And, of course, you know, um, you know I'm reasonably established. But I think for some people who are newer or for actors, it must be ever so hard because they must be facing very much financial troubles um, and um, just, you know, no hope of anything to do for a long time. 
And so I'm more hopeful now, although a little bit concerned, because I think that if anything happens, for example, I've got a tour this autumn, which has, of course, been rescheduled at least twice, especially mm. last autumn and so on. So I've got that tour coming up this autumn, and this is, has involved a lot of patients, not for me particularly, because it's easy for me, I just allow them to reschedule it, but from all the people, the promoters and the theatres and all the people who have been rescheduling it, they haven't made any money from that. They've just been doing a load of administration and spending money on promotions and things, and not necessarily with any hope of anything happening. So that's all happening this autumn. And then the only concern is that if we go backwards for some reason, it looks like we should go forwards, vaccine and all. But if we go backwards to some sort of new variant and something happens, uh, and then, for example, if that tour doesn't happen, it won't just be my tour, it'll be everyone's tour, um, then it will almost destroy our industry. I mean, mm. there'll be a lot of theatres that will go bust and... And that will, you know, that will be very bad news. And um, we might even get to the point where a lot of people like me will have to think, well, if we're going to be in that sort of situation with no certainty whatsoever, uh, you know, what exactly will my job be? Am I going to be just a writer or some other thing within comedy? But I hope it doesn't come to that. Yeah, I, hope yeah, that uh, I hope that things come normal. Um, in in the autumn, mm. and uh, with a bit of luck, there'll even be a bit of a, a boost because people will be desperate to go to shows and so on because they haven't been able to for so long. Yeah, what do you think about like the the anti vaxxers I guess that have been that are convinced that Bill Gates is um, going to track us all and uh, to have his way with us? Apparently, <laughs> well, um, I try not to think about it too much because uh, <laughs> I have to keep calm and not sort of get cross. But uh, one does feel, um, I mean, I've read quite a lot about it and the reasons, you know, and there's a lot of misinformation. I mean, there was this thing with the um, the AstraZeneca, uh, with the over 65s in Europe. And that was based on the fact that they hadn't tested it on as many over 65s as on younger age groups. Mm. The reason being, of course, they didn't want to just test it on a load of older people who might, if it wasn't safe. They wanted to test it on younger people first to make sure. But then that's it. So it wasn't that it didn't work on the over 65s. In fact, all the evidence shows it does work, just there wasn't as much evidence for the over 65s as for some of the other age groups. And then that was then changed by you know some of the Europeans, like Emmanuel Macron, said it was quasi-ineffective for the over 65s. It's just, just not true. Mm. And then that, that now means that a lot of people in Europe are refusing to take that. And um, and in fact, actually, the evidence now is showing that in the over 65s and the over 70s and the older age groups, the AstraZeneca jab is reducing hospital emissions by 94%. So showing it does work. But it just goes to show how silly little things become misinformation. And then people say, and then now in Europe, that has now become with Chinese whispers and so on into, well, it doesn't work on the over 65s, which itself isn't true. If it doesn't work on those, it doesn't really work on the younger people either, so I'm not taking it, it's not safe, and all this sort of stuff. Um, a lot of the anti-vaxxer stuff is based on, I think, three things. One, that it can give you serious illnesses, which is not true. 
uh, vaccines do not give serious illnesses. Two, um, that it can give you the disease that is attempting to stop you getting, which is not true, and give you mild symptoms of it. It is not true that it can give you the disease. Um, and, uh, you know, so those are the sort of things. And, uh, the, you know, and then there's other nonsense like it's full of microchips that build gates and it's laughable. But there are people who believe this sort of stuff. And um, it's very selfish, really, because, I mean, it's the same with people who won't have their children vaccinated for mumps and measles and things. We don't have mumps and measles in this country very much at the moment. That's because most people are vaccinated. But actually, they're starting to creep back in some countries in some parts of the world because there are so many anti-vaxxers. So, um, uh, you know, um, there's a lot of discussion at the moment about, well, should it be, what about civil liberties? Uh, should one be allowed to go to a restaurant if one hasn't been vaccinated? I'm not sure it will come to that. I imagine, I don't know whether there will be restaurants that will say you can't come in if you haven't been vaccinated. I should point out that if people haven't been vaccinated because they've got a genuine medical reason for not doing it, I think those people should be allowed to go in. They should have a thing. That's fair enough. We, we can have a small number of people who haven't been vaccinated for medical reasons and then the vaccine will still work. When it won't work is if a lot of people decide they're just arbitrarily not going to have it. So I don't think that will quite happen in the restaurants, although I wouldn't mind if it did. But certainly what I know from my travels around the world is places like Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, countries like that will not take any risks and they will not allow people in if they haven't been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people will find that their freedoms of movement are restricted if they're not vaccinated. That's a problem, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah. Well, I, su I suppose we're sort of living in a time more now than ever where we have the fake news and misinformation sort of really apparent, on, especially on social media and things like this. And I, and I suppose with Trump as well, Trump, who was someone that was a president that was kind of saying, well, I'm not sure if I would take the vaccine. But then he would say things like, maybe we can inject ourselves with bleach at the same time. So right. it's, it's just I mean, it's laughable, but it just increases the sense of uh, people not trusting government and mm -hmm. science. But of course, if you don't trust something, it's right to not, it's right to be... Uh, suspicious in a way of and questioning of things that's a good thing in human nature and to say well is that true is that you know but if you're going to hold scientists and politicians to that and government really i don't mean politicians in the political sense but government if you're going to hold them to that level of accountability and that level of uh, of question then you also have to do the same for what you read on facebook so if you think, well, you know, it's not good enough just to say, oh, well, um, ooh, I'm not sure about this and that and something doesn't add up. Oh, but I've also read on Facebook that Bill Gates has injected it all with um, you know, the vaccine with a microchip. If you think that, you have to then question that to the same level and say, well, how did you get the microchips into the vaccine? How does it work? How do the microchips feed back to Bill Gates? And more fundamentally, why is Bill Gates interested in, you know, where I'm going for a walk? <laughs> anyway, I doubt he is. But um, anyway, <laughs> you know, so 
Oh, no, I'd be quite happy for Bill Gates to know where I'm going. <laughs> I know, yeah, to show interest. <laughs> but there's, there seems to be a lack of logic, <laughs> and it's this sort of sense of, well, you know, who can say, you know? I mean, I, I remember someone saying, well, um, they said, well, uh, humans, uh, men, as they were in those days, they never went to the moon. And I said, okay, you know, if you want to believe that, you can believe it. Um, and then there were various reasons, something to do with a flag or something, and uh, something to do with a shadow and a flag and some other reason. I said, okay, fine. And they said, well, uh, you know, um, so, and their reasons were based, one of the reasons was based on the fact that uh, someone once at a conference questioned, I think it was Buzz Aldrin or Neil Armstrong or one of the other um, astronauts and said, what do you think about the idea that uh, it's not true and no one ever went to the moon? And I think the astronaut stormed out. It's very anecdotal evidence. I mean, he, he may well have stormed out because he was fed up with being asked the same question. <laughs> Having gone, you know, can you imagine the amazing experience of putting your life at risk for a start because they didn't know where they were going to come back. It's very dangerous flying into orbit and then getting to the moon that took about four days to get a quarter of a million miles, orbiting the moon, then landing on the moon, then not knowing even whether you were going to be able to take off again from the moon and come all the way back. I mean, it was so technologically amazing experience, seeing the Earth from the distance, this little blue thing in the emptiness of space and all this sort of stuff. And they all had all sorts of experiences, some quite sort of almost sort of spiritual experiences of realising why are we all fighting each other? Why is there so much war and strife? We're all on this beautiful planet and we're all so vulnerable within the blackness of space. And you get back and all these people are saying, well, we never went there. It must be quite <laughs> annoying. Anyway, so that was one of the pieces of evidence in inverted commas and there are other things. So I said, well, and then they said, well, that they must have paid off. What they would have done is... um paid off the, they gave the politicians, the, the, the uh, astronauts uh, money, you know, to pretend that they had been, even though they hadn't. So I said, okay, well, if this had happened and no one had been to the moon, it wouldn't just be the 14, I think it was, astronauts. There would also be have to be a significant number of other people who would also know that no one had ever been to the moon. There would be a lot of people on the ground. And, I mean, there would be... It would be difficult to imagine that you could stage such a thing without at least dozens, probably hundreds of people knowing. There'd have to be a lot of people who knew. Yeah. And so all of those people would have to all decide to take a vow of silence, either because they just decide that's the best thing to do, that's the right thing to do, and not a single one of them ever thought, you know, I ought to reveal that it's actually not true. (laughs) Or they were all paid sort of hush money to keep quiet. But then there would be several hundred or scores of people who would all have lots of money. They would all have had lots of mysterious money would have gone into their bank accounts. Or they would all have been shot by the uh, Secret Service or something to keep them quiet, but they weren't. So if you're going to think they didn't go to the moon, you have to then justify the other side of the story. It's not just enough to say, ooh, the flagpole. Something about the shadow's not right. Ooh, they didn't go to the moon then. You have yeah. to justify the other side. And it's the same with the anti-vaxxers. If you, don't, if you think it doesn't work or it's dangerous, you have to justify it to the same level the others are justifying it. 
or yeah. else shut up. Yeah, I think it's the same. Well, we, it's a time we're living in with conspiracies, isn't it? And it's I think the most angriest, the one that, that makes me most angriest is probably the ones that you know people that claim that nine eleven was like an inside job and things like that. Again, how does something on that scale happen with so many people being involved and planes and Pentagon, the, the buildings coming down, the Pentagon and that plane that sort of crashed into a field. But there's people in America, especially, there's been big documentaries about people that feel that they've got evidence or truth or whatever to, to point things out. Well, yes, I mean, if that were a case, let's, let's say for the sake of argument, the president was the one who was behind it and he decided to do it. But there would have to be a number of other people and the FBI, CIA, and all sorts of people who would all know. I mean, you can't just, uh, you know, make uh, 9-11 happen without a significant number of people knowing. And then they would all, obviously, then the, the, uh, the suicide bombers, they would obviously have known because they would have had to have been recruited in some way indirectly by the president who was organising all this, wouldn't they? They would all have to know. Um, and they may, they may well have had to have been people perhaps at the airport doing security who sort of let them through because they were also in the know that, oh, yeah, we're letting them through because they're going to go and do a terrorist attack. That's all from the president. So all these people, would have, it would be difficult, to, again, to, to do it without dozens, scores, probably hundreds of people knowing. And not one of them has ever come forward and said, do you know that this was an inside job? And actually, you know, having thought about it, I've suddenly sort of thought, well, maybe it was wrong for the president of the United States, together with the CIA and other senior figures, to band together in order to kill several thousand American people and make it look like a terrorist attack. Maybe that was wrong. I think I'm going to blow the whistle. No one has done that. But at the same time, they haven't all been shot by the CIA to keep them quiet, nor have they been given loads of money to keep them quiet. But yes, obviously, you know, that's, you know, it's ludicrous, these yeah, sort yeah. of conspiracies, and doesn't, uh, it doesn't stack up. Mm -hmm. Do you think, I suppose, it comes, it comes to it as well with us as humans, sometimes we feel like when something so crazy like that happens, we can't accept... That, that people, just normal people with box cutters could go onto a plane and take over a plane. There has to be more reason to it because it's so, in some people says it's so crazy and so illogical. It has to be a bigger reason for, for it to to for it for it to have happened. Well, yes, so I think that's true. It's sort of quasi-religious, really, uh, because it's some, it's religion is attempting to find some sort of meaning behind sometimes things which maybe appear on the surface to be meaningless and it's the same with this is trying to find some meaning to the fact that prosaically what happened is some people did had box cutters and so on and did these terrible things and indeed it is religious in the sense that if you question these people who have these conspiracy uh, beliefs you can't win because in the same because they will just say um uh, you know, if you say, well, uh, you know, there's no evidence of this in the mainstream media, they say, well, that's because it's all hushed up. And that's because people in the CIA have paid the people in the media not to say. And and if you say, uh, well, what about those people who paid them? Who, well, someone else paid them. And you can, you can never win because there's always be some reason. And it's all and it's sort of a self-fulfilling argument, isn't it? But uh, the reason... It's not officially recognised. It's because it's all been hushed up. So therefore, 
you can never argue about it because it's all hushed up. In the same way with religion, you can't really argue with that because, well, that's because you don't believe or you're a non-believer. But if you believe, then all these things are true. So it's the same sort of argument, really. It's sort of a circular argument, a sort of uh, a sort of argument that you can't argue with. You know, if, it, yeah. if you say, oh, well, I don't believe this. And I say, well, God has told me I have a personal connection with God has told me this. You can't really win that argument. I mean, I'm, I've heard it from God. You can't win it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, how do you feel, I suppose, about uh, censorship? I know, obviously, we've seen re- recently, you know, Donald Trump's been taken off Twitter and his social media pages, and, you know, he was spouting a lot of stuff on there. But do you feel that kind of fuels his supporters into thinking there is an agenda, like a deep thing agenda by silencing him, and there's, it, it riles people up more? Well, I suppose so. It's difficult, though, isn't it? Because at the same time... Uh, maybe more damaging to have him saying all this rubbish. Well, yeah. (laughs) In my opinion, mainly rubbish. Uh, So we have this all the time with everything. Um, You know, um, you you know, and we do have laws. I mean, you could say freedom of speech says you can say anything, but then we do have laws. You can't go around and just say a load of racially offensive things. Mm-hmm. because we don't find that acceptable. And as a society, we have to decide what we find acceptable, what we don't. It's always tricky, isn't it? Because um, there's a whole thing now with the, you know, um, with transgender people, what is acceptable to say and what isn't, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, and where it gets, of course, difficult is where one set of people feels that they have a legitimate point to make, but they can't make it because they're being told that they that's against the rules to say it. And that is rather concerning. I mean, in this country, we don't have any law against Holocaust denial, for example, which is obviously utterly abhorrent and preposterous. I mean, again, ludicrous. Um, I mean, one. Uh, I remember reading, I read once something, a Holocaust denial, um, Web page out of interest to see what other sort of things they were saying. It was very sort of, it was very cleverly written because it was very sort of persuasive. And you sort of thought, oh, you know, for a while you almost sort of thought, oh, yes, it's, yes, we're maybe just far fewer people than they say. And it was all very cleverly written. But um, the way I put it, see it is they say there weren't all these people who died, but then you have to say, well, where did they go? I mean, for example, my great-grandmother, she died in the Holocaust in a concentration camp at Lublin. Well, I can't be certain she died in Lublin. All I know is that our last communication as a family from her was a, a letter from Lublin concentration camp, which she didn't call Lublin concentration camp because she didn't really know where she was. She just said, I'm in this place called Lublin, and it's a sort of camp thing, and I'm not sure what's going to happen next. All I know, now I can't prove she died, and this is, I suppose, what the Holocaust denial people would say, well, you can't prove she died. She, she might, might have got come out. All I do know is she was very close to her family, for obvious reasons, as most people are. All I do know is that she never got in touch. <laughs> so anyway, so one has to assume she died there, unfortunately. And, um, and the same would apply to the many, many millions of people who had other relatives, Jewish and homosexual and disabled and other people, uh, travelling people and other people who all died. 
So one has to assume they died. But that's the sort of ludicrous arguments they have, you know. So anyway, I can't remember what was the point of uh, what was the question. Oh, we're talking about we're talking about censorship, weren't we? (laughs) Oh, censorship. So yes. So to say, you know, so we don't know. So that's what the point is. Holocaust denial is utterly abhorrent, and but we don't have laws against it in this country against actually saying it. There are in Germany, and you can understand why in Germany maybe it's more necessary. And I'm not saying one country is right and one country is wrong. It's complicated. Um, I suppose we have the balance about right. People are allowed to say that. In a way, if you ban people from saying, denying the Holocaust by law, uh, then in a way you give more strength to them in some senses because uh, because then they can say, oh, well, I'm banned from saying it because there's some truth behind it. But then you also give more strength to them if you don't ban it, and there's lots of people saying it. So it's sort of a balance, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a difference between what is legally acceptable and what, what you know what one wants to hit. You know, I mean, if someone came to my house and they were denying the Holocaust, and unless you know, and saying these sort of things. Unless, you know, and I'd be interested, I suppose, to discuss it. If someone came to a dinner party and they were saying it, I'd discuss it. But if they were not a very nice person who seemed to have, uh, were not listening to reason, uh, I probably wouldn't want them to come to another dinner party. I probably wouldn't want to be friends with them. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that they should be banned by law from saying it. So it's a tricky thing. Of course, comedy is one of the sort of last areas of censorship. It's one of the areas where people are, by and large, able to say more or less what they, not what they want, but they're able to, you can get away with saying all sorts of things in comedy that you couldn't say uh, in other, you know, in other fields. And you can sometimes address uh, sort of truths. Um, and you can sometimes say things in a comedy way that it would be very difficult to really address that issue in any other way. And it is on the on the surface a joke, but underneath there's some truth to it, and maybe something and there's a bit of an uncomfortable truth to it, mm-hmm. or something that makes people think, "Oh, what is my attitude towards this or that?" You know, that's that's made me think about that in a different way. So, um, yeah. So, um, well, yes. I mean, fortunately, we do live in a place of free speech, and I know having. We, we, I think in our country, in the UK, and other f- free countries, like our country, because we're used to it, we sometimes uh, underestimate the importance of free speech. And I remember going to a country a few years ago, a very nice country, but it was a country where one wasn't free to say anything you wanted about religion or about the ruling royal family who ran the country. Um, not that I particularly knew anything much about the ruling royal family who ran the country and didn't have any bad things to say about things I didn't know them or know much about them. But anyway, that was the sort of country I was in. And there were all sorts of, you know, you'd be very careful what you said in public. And it was a relief in a way to be on that aeroplane coming home and to know that I could say, oh, I think the Queen's, uh, the Queen's feet smell and I don't like her. And also Princess Anne, the silly old cow. And I think we should get, not get rid of her. We should, you know, stop her being royal, make her just a normal person. 
I mean, whatever I wanted to say, I'm not saying I wanted to say those things, but I could say them if I wanted to, and we underestimate, you know, how big a deal that is to be able to just say what you like about powerful people. And we can say, we're allowed to say, I think Boris Johnson is the best prime minister or the worst prime minister, or he's useless, whatever. But there are other countries where you can't say those things. Yeah. Would it be able to say it in North Korea? <laughs> well, not in North Korea, no, in North Korea. <laughs> Um, I always think it's it's scary. I mean, when you see um, I, I, those sort of footage of the of um, Kim Kim Jong Un and um, he's meeting the um, I've forgotten his name. Is it Moon? Who's the um, oh yeah, yeah, I know you mean um, the, the yeah. president of South Korea and so on, and all the delegations. They're all just all jolly and back slapping each other, and it's all. Oh, and here, you know, they're all introducing each other, the South Koreans and North Koreans and so on. But it's, and then you've got maybe an interpreter and so on, but it's scary. I mean, um, if, you're one, if you're an interpreter and you get something wrong, you get shot in North Korea. Or if you say the wrong thing or you don't deliver with such and such, you get shot. Scary. Yeah, it's it's uh, ter- terrifying. I mean, I even heard of Kim Jong Un, like some of like the the kids um, in North Korea, like they like their Kim Jong Un is kind of like the action man in fiction as well. Like they <laughs> kids sort of like TV, not TV, but books they might read or comics or things like that. It's Kim Jong Un is like the hero. He is like the the action man, the spy, the Superman of you know of what kids are reading. It's just crazy. I mean, Donald Trump probably would want to do that as well if he could have got away with it, like Donald Trump as Captain America or something. But yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Well, I mean, Donald Trump is what you would say is um is uh you could describe him as a democratically elected dictator. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, scary. I think being in somewhere like North Korea in the ruling classes would have been a bit like being in the Tudor court or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you read those, I love, I often watch these history documentaries and read a lot about history. And you read these people and it's all power struggles. And there would be so-and-so who became the, you know, the senior advisor to King Henry VIII or something. And they didn't necessarily last long. You know, 10 years later, they'd fall from favour or there'd be some political change and then have their head cut off. It was all very, very short-lived, you know, dangerous world of, um, and if you were a woman and uh, and King Henry VIII liked you and you'd get on with and you'd be in his bed and you'd be in his favour and you could have whatever you wanted and the next minute you have your head cut off. <laughs> brutal world. Yes, absolutely brutal. I mean, as, as a comedian, do you have to be a bit more careful with your writing in terms of, do you worry about offending people a bit more easier now or have you had to develop that at all? Or? Oh, of course, and I have been for many years. Yeah. And indeed, I don't want to offend people for the sake of offending people. Sometimes I will say something that causes, not much, not, not very often, because I suppose I'm not the sort of comedian who necessarily is dealing with the most contentious issues all the time. Mm-hmm. And some of it's just really silly, but yes, I will address issues. And occasionally some people will be offended by something. Um, however, this is something it would not normally come as a surprise to me. If I'm creating something, I'll be thinking, is this going to offend people? And what am I saying here? I'm not just interested in, in that in that instance, what the what the 
not laugh, I guess, or how the joke works. I'm also interested in what am I saying as a human being? What am I saying? And I always want to think, yes, can I get behind this? And if someone were to say, either at the end of the show or to heckle and say, excuse me, you're being offensive, you're saying such and such, how would I justify what I'm saying? What is the, what is the underlying point? Um, so, yes, I have lots of, this is something that's very much in, on my, in my mind, of course, all the time. When I'm creating that sort of something that is for some reason on uh, on the contentious talking about something that's a little bit contentious, yes, mm-hmm. yeah, because uh, I think like with with some of the, I guess I, we've seen it recently, sort of in the news and things like um, things like Little Britain and stuff, have been pulled off Netflix, and I think Forty Towers as well has been pulled off, and you know, there's shows that I love to watch as like a teenager and as a kid growing up, but like, but are we? Is there a line somewhere where we can kind of be like that? That's maybe not acceptable now, but this is what it was like then, rather than just kind of pulling it away completely. Well, I think so. I think in the case sometimes in the case of Forty Towers, I think it was the episode, the Germans episode, mm-hmm. um, which actually they did put back up again because in fact I actually did a tweet, which is, I think was a bit subtle for some people, but I said it's down, it's up again, which was actually a <laughs> a sort of reverse quote of a bit that happens in that very episode of the Germans when he's putting the um, the moose up yeah. and then he and then um Polly's on the phone to Sybil in the in the hospital and she says, It's up, it's down again. But I think the bit in question, because I don't think most of um Forty Towers is not controversial, but I think the bit in question was a bit when the major and uh Basil are discussing something and they're discussing um uh, cricketers, and yes. I think there are two racially words that are used. Um, one that is less used now, and one that is still very, you know, very much in the, one of the most offensive racial words. Mm-hmm. Of course, um, the whole point of it is, in a way, that it, it, the whole point is that they're making fun of the sort of people who make those use those words but obviously the zeitgeist has changed since the 1970s because now we wouldn't even find it acceptable to use those words in a comedy show even to make fun of the people who use those words those words are so offensive we just don't want to watch them at all um so that i suppose is the what what is altered but it should be pointed out that is the point of that bit of the comedy it's making fun of the major the major is the dinosaur was racist views is making fun of him. Um, nevertheless, I think, um, I, I don't know whether they put it back up, but just deleted those lines. I have seen some edits of 40 Towers when those lines are taken out. And I have to say, I love 40 Towers. It's my, one of my very, very favourite programmes. So I don't find that bit necessary. I never found that bit very funny anyway, the sort of using those racist terms and sort of making fun of the, the major for being racist. So I think it was the right decision to put it up and maybe maybe leave those words in, but point out that it, they're making fun of the racists and point out that that it has a historical context, that those words were sort of acceptable. They were heard in those days. So I suppose that's the context. People did use those words in those days. So therefore he's making fun of the people who did use, use those words. When it comes to, um, I don't know, uh, was it Little Britain where they yeah, were yeah. You know, putting brown on their faces? I mean, 
I don't know. I mean, one has to sort of, I mean, everyone's going to have a different view, but I have to sort of think, do we need to watch that anymore? I mean, can we just take it down? There's lots of bits, bits of very hilarious bits of Little Britain that are very, very funny and that don't involve that, so we can have all the other bits. It's the same yeah. with um, League of Gentlemen, which I think is hilarious, but I think there's bits there where they put a brown on the, on the face and uh, th those bits have been taken away. And I don't think it makes much difference because it, it uh, uh, League of Gentlemen is effectively, although it has a narrative, it's effectively a sort of sketch show with narrative and to lose those bits is not the end of the world. So one finds that less acceptable. Um, and certainly, um, when I, I remember watching, uh, I don't know, I mean, it, it's a difficult one, isn't it? I remember watching um, some sitcom from the 70s and in it, there was a bit where it was making fun of gay people. So there, were, there, there was a man in a pub and then the pub landlord said, um, and I think the man in the pub was heterosexual. So he was heterosexual, but the, man, the pub landlord said, oh, there's a phone call for you. And the joke was supposed to be that he was getting this phone call from, from a gay bar or something. And the joke was kind of, well, you're heterosexual, but why are you getting a call from a gay bar? I mean, even saying this now seems so out of date. Yeah. The 70s. And then it was kind of, oh, there's a call from you to the gay bar. And then um, and then he was saying, hello, you know, and then, then all the other people in the pub were saying, oh, talking to his gay friends. I didn't find it very funny, particularly. I mean, it didn't seem to me the most hilarious bit of comedy. Uh, I mean, you could argue that should be taken down because it's just so out of date. Uh, and I suppose you could say, because the comedy there is not very subtle and sophisticated. The comedy is just gay. Ha, ha, ha. I mean, that's all it is. It, there's nothing more to it. There's no sophistication to it. So I just think um, the idea of putting that out there now as a piece of comedy is A, dated, and B, slightly offensive, I suppose, in the sense that if people are laughing still at that joke, they probably shouldn't be. Why are people still laughing at that? The idea of, oh, someone's gay. Ha, ha, ha. It's not. It's not. So I think for people, and I think for most people watching, I wouldn't find that funny. Yeah. Well, at even, all. Even with, like, I mean, one of, one of my biggest influences in comedy is Monty Python and they never really did anything sort of that controversial, as funny as it was, but there was never really sort of any sort of homophobic or racist stuff with Monty Python, was there? No, there wasn't. Um, but at the same time, um, yeah, I mean, you have to have some sympathy for, for certain programmes and things. I mean, everyone does. If I look at my co comedy output, um, I mean, I... I don't think really race is something I've dealt with very much, mm -hmm. but I have had references to gay people and things in my in the comedy from time to time every years, and uh, I am gay myself. Uh, but nevertheless, I think if you looked at some uh, comedy from twenty years ago, some little bits of it, you might think the zeitgeist has moved on now, and that's not quite the right way to put that now. It's changed, you know. Yeah. So, um, um, yes, even in quite relatively short lengths of time, 
um, things can, the zeitgeist moves on and uh, pieces of comedy I look back on sometimes and think that just wouldn't, it's not necessarily about being offensive, it's just some things move on and sometimes things look old fashioned and different now compared to, uh, uh, you know, five years ago, you know, so yes, changes. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but, but you say you could say, I mean, so you could say, therefore, that something I wrote 23 years ago, I should point out we're only talking very small amounts of my comedy output. Most of it has nothing to do with being gay or anything else. But you could maybe point to one or two lines here and there that, that 23 years ago or something that were written and say, oh, you wouldn't want to say that now. Well, that's changed. And then I suppose you could extrapolate that and say, oh, therefore, what I said was homophobic. I don't think I don't think I don't think it was homophobic. I mean, of course, being gay doesn't mean you can't be homophobic. But I don't think it was being homophobic. Uh, I think so. You can't just always judge people by something that was twenty-five years ago. Things, different things, are acceptable to be said, and are different things that society is dealing with. Um, but yes, um, the world changes. Yeah, 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 I've forgotten yeah. the question. It was a brilliant <laughs> answer, but I forgot what the original question was. <laughs> well, I, it was. I guess it was just talking, just talking about that. You know, we could talk about Little Britain and Forty Towers, weren't we? Really, and yeah, you know, I mentioned Monty Python there. They didn't really, you know, wasn't too on the nose with the with that. I mean, I, even, I think even with I have a friend that said, "Well, I found Little Britain offensive with, with homophobic uh, because of the Matt Lucas character. I'm the only gay in a village." I'm like, "Well, Matt Lucas is gay. I'm not even sure that is meant to be." homophobic as the guy well, no, no, no. Yeah. I don't think it is homophobic but no. I think the other person is right in a way that, that the zeitgeist has moved on when was Little Britain 10 years ago longer mm -hmm. they probably wouldn't write that sketch now and that sketch probably wouldn't go on the television now things have moved on people have a different attitude so what that was that was dealing with a particular sort of you know with the mood of the people and with the sort of attitudes people had then Mm -hmm. And I found it funny, I must say, 12 yeah. years ago. I didn't find it homophobic or offensive. But, uh, but now I would probably find it less funny uh, and um, and not offensive exactly, but, you know, less funny, a little bit of, well, not offensive, but I'm feeling a bit sort of, yeah, I, I, well, sort of offensive. Dated, way. I suppose, yeah. yeah. Um, so I understand their point. And that doesn't mean uh, that... They were being offensive or they were being homophobic. And it doesn't also mean, I think, a lot of the, the fear uh, you get, especially from the right wing, is that, um, you know, we're going to be laughing less and less what's going to be left, become more and more politically correct. Um, I think it's just we'll be laughing at different things. Things change. So with things we will laugh at now, we wouldn't have laughed at 12 years ago because something will have become funny now that wouldn't have made sense then. So yeah. it's always altering. So who who are your comedy like influences? You know, as a young comedian when you started. Well, I don't. I mean, uh, I've been asked this question before. Not many people really. I mean, when I started, uh, which was when I was twenty one or nineteen, when I actually did my very first show at university, I didn't really understand much about. I hadn't seen much stand up comedy, and I didn't really understand the genre. In fact, when I went on stage for the first time, I didn't even know that you're supposed to basically prepare some material, I assumed that comedians just went and sort of made things up. So at first, <laughs> I, 
the first time I went on stage, I literally had no concept of what stand-up comedians did other than the fact they held a microphone. So I just, the first time I went on, I just went on and said, well, can anyone name a fruit? And then I would sort of improvise off what they said. So there weren't many influences. I didn't know much stand-up comedy. So, uh, and I have, I hope, well, I think so, more or less so kept it like that since. I haven't, I haven't been influenced hugely by many people very much. And uh, other than sometimes in a procedural way, I mean, for example, American comedians, I've been sometimes influenced by the way they go about things, the way they start the show in a technical, it's not about the content or anything like that necessarily, but the way they, the sort of discipline with which, not all, but a lot of American comedians go about starting and structuring things. Uh, so yes, I've more or less uh, created most of my comedy in a, in a vacuum, really. When I And when I started in London doing the open spots properly as a, as a, as a new comedian, when I was about 22, 23, um, I remember a lot of people saying, oh, well, you're very doing a different thing to other comedians and you're unusual or whatever. Um, or, but I, I'd never planned that. I just did the sort of comedy that seemed to me the most obvious. Uh, I just did my, and I still do, really. And so I certainly don't plan to be original or different or anything else. In fact, they say if you try to be original, you won't be. And I think if you try to be different or weird, then you end up being wacky and so on. So I think one can only do, one can only just do what one wants to do at all times. And I suppose um, it's always a mistake, I think, to do what you think people want. You have to do what you want to do uh, rather than... Um, I mean, I do see different um, changes in the comedy the comedy world and what sort of comedy seems to be the most fashionable, what's winning the awards and what isn't, and so on. And sometimes one thinks, well, if I did something a bit more like that, would I be more successful? But then you think, well, I, I don't think I could do that. Well, I could do that if I wanted to, but it, it, I, I'm better off doing what I, what I want to do. And, and, and uh, I think attempting to be someone else or do something differently always is the wrong thing mm -hmm. yeah I, I think uh but you've been deemed as a, a comedy genius by you know um different journalists and, and i suppose people um make the comparison with russell brand i suppose is very influenced by your work i think some of your fans get a bit angry because they think he copies you but you guys work together quite closely is you have like quite a fun relationship together well, we work together. That we don't work together now. It was a long time ago. Yeah, that was what was two thousand four, five. That was fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years ago. A long time ago. But we did do a double act for a while together. And I think, um, I mean, um, clearly, two people are going to influence each other. But I think, I think he admitted in his book that it was more that he was influenced by me. Um, and, and quite a lot of, I think, some of the mannerisms and certain things were very much influenced by me. Uh, but, uh, you know, and I know that some people get a little bit annoyed, uh, but I do also think there's a lot of other stuff going on with Russell. He's a very talented man and he has a charismatic and all sorts of other things. And the idea that simply by 
adopting one or two mannerisms of mine and some other thoughts, that that somehow, you know, I think it's more to it. Uh, that's not the only reason for his success. And I'm still friends with him and I still see him time to time and he's still as eccentric as ever. And he's, in his own, yes, he's a... Yeah. He's an eccentric man, you know, who is, um, and like, because uh, he's been through lots of phases. I mean, he sort of went through the sort of being a comedian phase, and then he was, then he was a film star phase, and then he was a sort of um, uh, the sort of social commentator activist phase, mm -hmm. and then it was a sort of family man phase. And uh, what, don't know what his next phase is. And that's not to say he hasn't continued to be a comedian and other things throughout that, but he's been through phases when he's sort of focused on particular things. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, I've always sort of thought to myself, well, I'll always just be a comedian. But now, well, I don't know. We'll see. I hope, but going back to what I said at the beginning, I'm sort of, I, you know, I, I, I always think it's best to prepare for the worst and if things are better, so I'm preparing myself for the worst, and the worst to me is a the tour, and all comedy gets all cancelled in the autumn. We go backwards, and then we find ourselves in a very different, uh, very different industry. And then I might have to think, well, what's my next phase? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, have you been able to get on the any quiz shows recent over the last COVID year? Like you know, because you could do lots and lots of different quiz shows. I've seen you on Not so much. I mean, there haven't been filming so many things, I suppose, mm. because of the lockdown. Yeah. I haven't filming something in a couple of weeks or something, and there was something that went out a little while ago that had been recorded prior to lockdown, and and I think they had held it back because they obviously wanted to hold things so they had something to put out later until such the time as things, I suppose it won't probably be till the autumn when they start recording TV shows again. If you were a TV producer, would you be filming in June? Mm. Probably not. I mean, there's too many risks that it's all going to be cancelled again. So that'll probably be the autumn yeah. before those things happen again. Yeah. And then there's, of course, there are some things, the sort of silver lining to the COVID thing has been, I suppose, the Zoom show thing. And that is something that, um, I don't think if it hadn't been for COVID and lockdown, maybe there would have been Zoom shows. I don't know, but it's sort of something that has been born of the... It's a genre that has been born of COVID that may never have really happened as a, as a genre for entertainment. And it's been really fun, and it's been, I think, a lifeline to me, gives me something to do, and to my, my uh, connoisseurs, my fans who tune in to watch me. Um, especially when in the dark days of the winter, when it's a Saturday night and you can't go anywhere and it gives they can have a glass of wine and watch the show and we can have a bit of a chat at the end and it's sort of a, it's a nice thing for us all to do. Uh, and I'm, I still don't know, I just don't know whether um, once COVID is all over, whether the Zoom show is going to be a, a, a genre that continues. Maybe not every month, but from time to time, people, and because you've got the advantage, they don't all have to be even in the same country. They can, I can do one to Australia, or I can do one to the UK from Australia, and so and so, and it allows you to reach people who can't necessarily come to a show at the moment for whatever reason, and whether that be just a new genre, a new aspect, uh, a sort of a new dividend from the COVID, a sort of silver lining to the terrible, obviously terrible things that happened with COVID, 
or whether once it's all over, people will just think, I never, ever want to see a Zoom show again in my life. I've had enough of it. I mean, I enjoyed it, but, you know, I want to go to a live show. Stuff that, you know. Yeah. Like <laughs> so I don't know which way it's going to go. Yeah. yeah, it's like the Zoom quizzes. Did you do many of them, the Zoom quizzes? I can't, I can't do another one, I don't think. <laughs> I don't think I've done any. I think um, and I've managed to keep clear of uh, a lot of these things that some people say, and they say, oh, it's oh, all the family and various in-laws. It's a Zoom. We all chat on Zoom. And it's can go on for hours on end, apparently. You know, I've managed to avoid those sort of things. Um, <laughs> you avoided well. <laughs> but there are some things, you know, it has some. There are some times, I suppose, like talking to my manager, maybe. Normally, I would go to my manager's house or we'd meet up in London or something to discuss things. There have been times when the two of us have just had a Zoom thing to go over something. Uh, so maybe that will be something that will happen a bit more. Sometimes we'll say, look, it's just not convenient for me to come. Let's do one on Zoom, which sometimes just is a little bit easier yeah. than being on the phone. But I, I, I don't see it fundamentally altering. I mean, I, I mean, people, I think you're talking about some things. I think there'll be offices. I think people will still go to offices, but there'll be more flexibility. It might be that people only go in three days and there's a bit of flexi. You know, this desk is John's on Monday to Wednesday and it's Sharon's Thursday, Friday sort of thing. And they swap round and, and you don't necessarily have to have a desk for everyone. But I think uh, there will still be people wanting to go to offices and meet other people because that's a very important part of feeling sometimes if you're part of a company and that sort of exchange of ideas you have. And I also know from people in business, in normal businesses, that uh, they say that, you know, nothing makes up for actually just meeting people when you're doing a big deal or selling something to actually go and meet the people, get to know them and then discuss the deal. And, you know, rather than just on Zoom, it can be uh, and it can just be painfully, you know, difficult and you can't really judge the other person anyway. And it's very boring and it feels... So I think I don't think it's going to change the fundamentals of human nature, which is that people like to meet each other. Yeah, I suppose I suppose when you do your um, stand up stuff or Zoom up stuff, I suppose on on Zoom, um, you don't have to worry about any potential hecklers that might <laughs> that might spring up. Can you could just kind of mute them and kick them out? Well, I don't know. Although uh, um, they, they don't have to mute them because they're not muted in the, unmuted in the first place. Oh yeah, um, and. Um, I very rapidly didn't bother with the um, the unmuting thing. I unmute people sometimes if they're... Because I have people who do like a little play within my show and I sometimes unmute people to have a chat. But essentially, people are not muted. I, I, I did do one Zoom show in the early days for someone else when they had a very complicated system where there were, I don't know, a few hundred people watching, but there were a core of people who were listening... And blah, blah, but then you could hear them, and it was ever so complicated technically. And in a way, I was found it less helpful because ha having thirty people sort of laughing on, which is sort of the limit to how many people can normally get, all unmuted, and having them unmuted and laughing, and sometimes it would interrupt the flow of what I was saying. It was more, it was easier just to do it, just do it. To, uh, in fact, when I do it, it's just to my own face because I'm obviously I've set it to go to my own face because not because uh, 
I like to see my own face, but because I want to say that I'm in the screen and so on. So, um, you know, I just do it to myself, as it were. And then um, my manager maybe looks at whether people are laughing and so on. But in the end, you don't really know. We can tell whether people are laughing and you can tell whether people uh, chat in the chat box saying, I've enjoyed it. And also you can tell because people uh, buy a ticket for the next show. But in terms of the exact details of whether or not a particular brand new joke works, and you can't really tell until you're doing it in front of a live audience. Yeah. So yes, I don't bother to unmute people and all that complication. I think you just have to get used to in the Zoom scenario doing it to silence, and you have to get used to a different sort of timing. You have to time it differently, and it's a different discipline. Um, in terms of my own shows, of course, this question people ask a lot about hecklers, because you have to remember that when I do my my shows, which are generally I'm doing um, shows in theatres to people who've all come to see me, you're not going to get many hecklers. Occasionally you can have someone who joins in in a fun way uh, or says something very clever or amusing about something, and that's not really heckling, that's sort of fun, you know, and they're joining in. But in terms of what you call a heckler, when someone says, you know, get off your little taxi, this sort of whatever, not going to get that very often as an audience of people who come to see you, unless you had someone who's in there for the wrong reason, in which case you just shut them up. And then the rest of the time, I'm normally, in terms of live events, doing sort of clubs that are quite nice or some sort of trendy cabaret night when you're also not likely to get many hecklers. But obviously, if I do, I can cope with it. But it's not the uppermost thing in my mind, in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, what is the best way to deal with that, though, as a comedian? I guess, when you, did you learn how to deal with that as a younger comedian when you were kind of in the bars and, you know, sort of uh, the well, clubs? Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, in the early days, um, sometimes I wouldn't, uh, <laughs> in the early days, I would sometimes my gigs weren't going very well. Then you've got a heckler, that can be real difficulties. Although not always, because I remember once in Belfast doing a, show in a difficult not it was the uh, empire in belfast which was a difficult room to play i'm not saying it's a difficult now but it was certainly difficult for me then yeah uh, in a technical way and i remember someone saying oh you're rubbish get off or something but actually then that allowed me to say something to the heckler and then and then people started to get on my side because i put the heckler down and then I think the heckler maybe even came up to me at the end afterwards. And actually, the whole gig turned round to my favour. I think the heckler came up to me at the end and said they did it deliberately to help me. <laughs> Sometimes it can. <laughs> um, but, um, yes, um, in terms of um, heckling, I think um, I, I, I've never had sort of heckle put down as sort of oven ready, as um, Boris Johnson would say. As such, I mean, I tend to just deal with the truth of the situation. And most of the time, it's in good nature and you can have a laugh about what's been said. And occasionally, you can just talk about the ludicrousness of it. I mean, if you've got, I mean, if I've got, uh, you know, 199 people who all enjoy my show and one person doesn't like it and they say, oh, you don't like it, it's ludicrous. And you can point out the ludicrousness of what they're saying and you can very quickly turn 199 people, well, they're already on your side, but you can very quickly turn them against that person if they're not against them already. And you can, you know, uh, you can shut that person up, really. 
to the point where they are humiliated and they don't want to say anything, or unless they're just drunk and just, in which case they could just be taken away. And you have to remember with a lot of, uh, and that happens with a lot of, you know, if you go and see a lot of established um, comedians in big theatres, um, uh, they'll just be, if someone heckles, they're just taken away. So, you know, a lot yeah. of, um, you know, and to be honest, it's very self-indulgent of the comedian. You have to, of, of not the comedian, of the heckler. You have to remember uh, that, you know, if Jimmy Carr is in front of 4,000 people who are all loving his show and one person wants to shout out a drunken rubbish, yes, um, it can be quite entertaining to see him put, a, a put down and everyone laughs at his funny put down who they used to, you know, brilliant, well done, Jimmy. And if they say a second heckle, yes, maybe it's funny to hear the second put down from Jimmy. Yes, brilliant. Beyond that, you know, it's boring. I mean, people want to hear, they've cut their paid to see Jimmy Carr's comedy show. They haven't seen, paid to see him in some prolonged spat with someone. So they just remove these people. Yeah. I, su- uh, I, su- I suppose post COVID, you're itching to get back on the, the to have that environment again. I suppose are you are you looking forward to get back and out, get back out? Oh, there? absolutely! To get yeah. back uh, onto the live. I've done two live shows. I think since uh, one was a club thing in a nice club place in Reading that just somehow happened by miracle in August. Sort of, there were various restrictions, but it somehow there were loads of other shows that were all dotted throughout the year and they all got cancelled for one reason or another. There was some, they fell into some tear or something happened, but this one happened and there was one other show, a show of my own, uh, uh, socially distanced in an art centre that was in December and that somehow, again, only just happened, just as it was all happening. I mean, I mean, I, the day I, um, the day I, left for the show I was in tier two and moved into tier three that day that morning I moved into tier three by the time I got home I'd moved into tier four like you know I'd only left my own house for about 12 hours it's already gone through two tiers um and so that somehow miraculously happened and then I think the whole country went into lockdown shortly afterwards so yes I'll be very much looking forward to doing some real life shows the other thing, going back to Hecklers, to point out is um, that it's important to remember with Hecklers that, uh, because I think he- um, comedians, especially new comedians, you know, sometimes feel very sort of, oh, someone's heckled me, so like, oh my God, you know, I'm under attack and oh dear. And, it, and one feels on the, on the defensive and it feels uh, like a very frightening position to be in. But it's important to remember that with very, very rare exceptions, and there can be exceptions, but generally hecklers don't really mean much harm. It's all in good nature, you know. Generally, it's just a bit of a laugh. And I remember doing a show, this was probably 15 years ago, and doing some club show, it's just before Christmas, I remember it, and it was in some club with about 250 people, and it was a bit rowdy, and I don't think it went too well for me. And there were all these women who were all in London, hen party or they were all part of one company or I didn't put they were all together and they were particularly vociferously heckling me and 
and then I was sort of fighting a battle with them, a battle which I think I lost because I think in the end everyone was saying, get off, boo, and I was sort of, but you have to remember it was, it was like boo, but it wasn't really, they, it was only, it was a bit of... Punto. It, it what? Like Punto, like Punto, punto booing. Yeah. And then I remember then as I left, I had to go down some dark, little dark alley to get to where my car was parked. And there were all these women, all 25 of them or whatever, who, and they were the ones who'd been heckling me from the moment I got on stage. And I thought, oh dear, you know. Uh, and then as I went past, they all said, oh yeah, happy Christmas. And we enjoyed your performance. And but these are the people who were heckling, get off your rubbish from the, you know. I mean, you could argue whether or not they should have done it. Did they spoil it? Whatever. But not, you know, it, the point is, it didn't, it wasn't personal. It didn't really mean it much, you know, but. And uh, so over the years, there have been all sorts of people who've said all sorts of things to me. And of course, sometimes it is personal and very unpleasant, but most of the time it isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I bet you're. Um, I can't wait to see you back on stage and doing your thing, Paul. It's gonna hopefully it won't be too long. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lawrence. Yeah, so it's been great talk with you today, Paul. I'm not quite as nocturnal as you. I'm oh, afraid. you're going to bed now. It's twenty yes. past one in the morning. It's twenty past one in the morning. Is that like noon for you, or what? <laughs> well, this is like well, it's just starting now. I should point out that um, to the viewers that when. Lawrence um, made a message to me, where, when do you want to do, we said we would do this day or something, and what time would you like to do it? I said, well, maybe 3am or 4am or new, a dawn, like 6am. or. And then he was saying, well, I do tend to go to bed more like one, and so gently suggesting that it could be a bit earlier. But um, anyway, I'm glad we got it done. We went to 20 past one, so that's good. We did, we did, and uh, I look forward to hopefully seeing seeing you on stage, Paul. I've, I'm really looking forward to seeing oh, that. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Thanks for your time, Paul. Oh, thanks, Lawrence. So there we have it. A wonderful chat there with comedian Paul Foot. Um, I'm gonna have to go see him live. Like I'm sure he's gonna be hilarious to watch. I've never seen him like I've seen his stand up on TV, but I've never been sort of a gig. And I think I'd love to see him uh, uh, up close and personal because uh, he he seemed really you know a really nice guy and a really funny guy to to talk to. Um, so yeah, I hope it was. I hope we get Paul um, back on the podcast at some point. You know, uh, it was great talking to him, and hopefully we'll be able to speak to him again. Um, so yeah. Best luck to Paul in the future and be sure to follow us on our social media pages and support us please in any way you can. You can follow me on Twitter at LPrestige7 and our um, Twitter for the podcast that's at Shapes of Stories. You can follow me on Instagram under Prestige Books. You can follow me on Facebook under Lawrence Prestige and our Facebook page the Shapes of Stories. But um, thanks guys for listening and I'll see you again next time.